In the early 18th century, we get men starting to practice as midwives, and they were called man midwives. Their actual medical practice was full of mishaps and disasters and complications. This is not what you think. I'm Zasha Rosen. About 300 years ago, on December the 8th, 1726, a woman called Mary Toft gave a confession in London. She'd recently been an English sensation because she'd just been through a really unusual pregnancy, which set her right at the centre of an emerging competition between two groups of people, midwives and doctors. Amelia Dale wrote about Toft in her PhD. She knows the strange details in this strange birth story. And just a warning, for the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to talk about the mechanics of birth, women's body parts, antique medical details, and there are also some elements which relate to sexual assault. Amelia, thanks for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. This is the sort of story that not many people know. What are the basics of the story of Mary Toft and her pregnancy? Mary Toft was a woman from Glendinning. She wasn't very rich. She managed to convince everyone that she'd given birth to rabbits. She convinced these really prominent obstetricians, the king's obstetricians, like royal experts on obstetrics, that she'd given birth to rabbits. She managed to stage this birth of a litter of rabbits. And the way she did so was quite a brutal business. Um, um, a live rabbit? Yes. It sort of began with her presenting strange animal parts to doctors. And then it became increasingly elaborate. So first there was a local country doctor, John Howard, who attended her birth and claimed to have seen her giving birth to rabbits. And then she was moved to London at the culmination of the hoax and she was at round-the-clock surveillance and all these people came in, touched her belly, claimed that they could see her belly move and tremble and witnessed rabbits coming out of her body. Literally like they were in the birth room and they saw the rabbits come out. Of, yes, of, yeah. Like, like a baby out of her. Yeah, yeah. How did that work? Very painfully. Toff's confessions emphasised the pain that the whole procedure involved. It was eventually shown to be a hoax. Her husband had been discovered to be trying to buy young rabbits. So basically other people or she had put these rabbits up her in order to sort of rebirth them. Oh, why, why, why would you do that? So it seems to be that she was motivated by money, and also potentially that she was pressured into doing this by other people around her. I mean, the details are very murky. We probably won't ever be able to piece together, ultimately, the facts of the case. But the second and third confessions seem to imply that her mother-in-law persuaded her that this is some way that they can get money together. How did she end up in a position where she's confessing over this? Like, it's weird enough in the first place that she's faking births with rabbits. Why is she then having to give confessions about the hoax? Well, everyone was fascinated by it, as you can imagine. London was divided into the people who believed Toft and that this was this kind of miracle, monstrous, abnormal birth, and then the people who were sceptical. And it was sort of quite political as well. Lots of things riding on it, lots of people's reputation especially male obstetricians who went down on one side or the other. And so Richard Manningham, who was one of the guys who was very adamant that this whole thing was a hoax, that it was a physical impossibility, threatened Mary Toft under the threat of a very painful experiment to tell the truth. And so a day after he threatened her basically with torture, she confessed. 
And he was threatening to cut her open by the sounds of it, like a live caesarean to see if there are rabbits inside. Yeah, it seems like that. One of the reasons that people were so excited is there was this fad for first-person story around this time, like there is on the internet now. Yeah, the novel is beginning to become a really popular thing. So, yeah, people are really interested in narratives and you've got an explosion of the printing press at the time. So, yeah, I guess that's part of it. There is a sort of interest in these kind of narratives. But there are so many different things that make it a point of fascination. Anxieties around birth, anxieties around reproduction. Richard Manningham, James Douglas, St Andre, all the people who were involved in the Toft case, whether they were for it or against her. St Andre was the guy who staked his reputation on it being true, Manningham on it being false. Yes, exactly. Manningham wins out in the end. Yes, so in a way his name was associated with the Toft case even though he was correct. So there are lots of post-Toft satires which make fun of the male obstetricians who were like around Toft. So simply by being near Toft he was damaging his reputation and making himself a butt of satire. One of the reasons that satirists are making fun of obstetricians and of doctors is that we look at doctors as really, you know, respectable, important, almost scarily important, mm. and they really didn't have that opinion of doctors at that time. There are several reasons for this. I think that medical science is less reliable than it is now. Like one of the default methods is just like bleeding you. Have you got a cold? We'll just like open a vein. Letting blood out to let the yeah. cold out. Through the century, theories of the body changed but often the methods for curing them didn't. So while they would develop ideas of how this might actually work, what they did often didn't change because there were so many vested interests in a way in keeping the methodologies that they've been using the same. With someone like Toft, how much would they have understood what was going on in her body to try to work out if it was a hoax or not? It was a relatively new thing for men to be involved in the birthing process. Also, I want to stress that lots of the men that were involved with Toft were very educated. St. Andre speculated that it was Mary Toft's fallopian tubes, that there was some irregularity there that was causing the rabbit birth. The tubes between the ovary and the uterus, where the eggs normally come down? Yeah, and he was studying her. He didn't believe it until he'd actually witnessed her giving birth to a rabbit. So he wasn't like just a kind of crank. He was using epistemology. He was using science to try and work out what was going on. One of the other doctors, I think it's Manningham, actually dissects the rabbits to see what's inside them. Yeah, yeah. John Howard, the country doctor, he pickled the animal parts with an idea that they would be presented to the Royal Society, so the scholarly society in London. The idea of them being involved with the birth process even then was relatively new? Yeah, and so I guess this is something that we get across cultures, across the globe, the idea that birth is a kind of specifically feminine mystery or a woman-only business. And so during the Renaissance period in England and in so many different cultures, you have women in charge of other women's birth and often drawing on their own experience, birthing babies as being part of their medical practice. And so though some of the theories, I guess, would be seen now as superstitious, they were also like really experienced. They would wash their hands in vinegar. They had all these techniques that had been passed down. And then when in the early 18th century, we get men starting to practice as midwives and they were called man midwives. This shows the extent that midwives were largely responsible for the birthing process and it was seen as men almost intruding on um, female domain. 
it was almost seen as a kind of amphibious, androgynous figure, the male midwife. Do you think around this point, in your non-medical opinion, does it seem like they knew what they were doing? Well, the increasing popularity of male midwives can be directly correlated with complications in births. It was much more dangerous towards the late 18th century to give birth than it was, say, in the 17th century. Largely because they didn't wash their hands, I think that was a big thing. And also there were tools like the forceps that could crush babies' heads and they were trialling new methods that often resulted in disaster. That's stuff that we would recognise as medical science, even a very early medical science around yeah. birth. But this was not the only approach that doctors had to how birth works. One of the big things was kind of centred around Mary claiming that she'd seen rabbits. At the time, this idea was that an explanation for monstrous births or deformities, it was the idea that the maternal imagination was so powerful that it could affect and actually mark and print the fetus. So a woman who was praying to John the Baptist every night and he was wearing camel hair, she'd give birth to like a camel. And Mary Toft claimed to be fixated on rabbits and she said that she'd been just thinking about rabbits all the time, really wanted to eat them. So then this fixation was then directly connected by her and used by her as an explanation for the rabbit births. And this was part of a wider theory that women were a bit like blank slates. Yeah, it was just the idea that people were sort of impressionable. It was an idea that figured women as having particularly powerful imaginations that were dangerous potentially to men and paternal reproduction. So you have Aristotle's masterpiece, which is a kind of sex birth guide, very popular in the period, and it has nothing to do with Aristotle claims that if a woman's having sex with her lover, not her husband, but at the point of orgasm imagines her husband, then the child will look like her husband. And so you have no way of telling if your kid is yours or if it's just your wife's imagination. So the upshot of that is you could be really faithful and think of the handsome bloke next door and you could have a child that looks like someone you've never had an affair with. Yeah, yeah. And so there was a woman who gave birth apparently to a dark-skinned child and it was because she looked at a black person. That was the explanation for it. But yeah, they had all kinds of interesting theories of birth that said that female pleasure was as important as the man's in conception. So it was necessary to orgasm to conceive. We look back on this now, and I'm smiling, I'm laughing quietly in the studio, but for all they knew at the period, this stuff could have been true. Yeah, I think it's easy to dismiss it. And lots of their theories of the body and their ideas about the way the body works, even though science now disproves it and we can say, okay, that's not actually what's going on. I think they kind of fit your experience of the body. Men talk about the way that they believed that semen was like brain juice, And the way that they talked about how women apparently knew from the point of conception, they could feel it in their body that they were pregnant. Experiencing the imagination, they weren't two separate things. They were a single fabric in this approach to biology and experience. Yeah, it's a much more embodied and experiential model of the body that uses, yeah, your own experience as a way of then figuring out what's going on. One of the things that seems to be more or less the same through a series of confessions is her actual experience of pain, of the pain of childbirth. Yes, yeah, totally. And looking back on our first episode this season, confessions under duress can be very unreliable. And she actually gives three separate confessions that have three separate reasons for why she did it. 
Yeah, these confessions were under duress. She was threatened with that painful experiment. It was following this round-the-clock observation of her in London where she was subject to all kinds of invasive physical examinations. So, yeah, you would imagine that this confession is even more unreliable in a way than your average confession. Mary's experience of pain and possibly a sort of trauma resulting from a miscarriage that she has prior to the quote-unquote monstrous births is something that remains consistent throughout the three confessions. So she has this miscarriage because she's a peasant woman. She's working in the fields while she's pregnant. She describes passing a substance as large as her arm. So this is a weird miscarriage and she talks about flooding. And then depending on which confession you're looking at, it's this mysterious, quite sinister knife grinder woman or it's her actual mother-in-law who persuades her while she describes her body as being sort of still open to begin putting animal parts in there. And, um, yeah... The knife grinder, as far as we can tell from this distance, she may be an invented character. Her mother-in-law was very real. Yes. Do we really think it was fair to blame the mother-in-law? Well, I guess there's no way we can know. There are some historians who've read this as Mary Toff trying to push the blame on other people and blame everyone but herself. Others have said that this is probably a description of sexual trauma and Toft seems to be the kind of person who's quite easily prodded and persuaded. Certainly her husband was buying those rabbits, apparently. And this seems to be at the centre of all of these versions of the story, that people were pushing Mary to do things with her body she didn't want to do. Yes, yes. And so the description of a knife grinder's wife is a description of Toft basically being sexually assaulted with a foreign object. And you could see her characterization of her mother-in-law as a knife grinder, as her way of maybe projecting or removing this sinister aspect of her mother-in-law onto some unfamiliar figure. You've spent a lot of time studying the story of Mary Toff. You teach at Sydney University. You mentioned this to students, they get excited about it. Yeah, they love it. You've been living with this story for a long time. What do you think of Mary? I just feel really sorry for her, I think. I guess we can see the way she becomes a kind of object of science. She struggles to make her body belong to her, so it becomes, according to her confession, her mother-in-law and John Howard, the country doctor, are basically forcing her to put these things into her body, or they themselves are putting these animal parts and bones and really grisly bits of flesh into her body. And she talks about a foot of an animal with claws being put up there. So this is a description of assault and trauma. And then she's taken to London and she's getting all these men prodding her and poking her while she at the same time is intensely scared of being found out and desperately trying to find the opportunity to continue inserting these parts into her so she can continue keeping up the hoax. And I think it was about two months, so it was this really painful, protracted process for Mary. But she survived. She was obviously quite sick, but she was very lucky not to have died. And she lives to a ripe old age, relative for the time. Yeah, relative for the time in her class, yeah. What happened to medical science after her case? There are still midwives, but they become less popular, I guess. Over the centuries, it does actually switch, so midwives are less of a thing and doctors are more of a thing in the Mm. birth process. Is that about science? Well, certainly there were male midwives who would identify as men of science and who researched and carried out dissections. 
their actual medical practice was full of mishaps and disasters and more complications than midwives had. So the statistics aren't on their side, especially early on. Why do they end up taking over then? Well, I think it's ultimately like patriarchy. They go to all these arguments as to why men are more qualified to oversee birth and stress women's emotionality, their reason, their science, but also their sensitivity as well. I think that it's just it's just sexism, ultimately. And you get a sort of reimagining of Mary Toft's case as being one of a triumph of male science and enlightenment over midwifery and superstition. And of course, that's not actually how it played out. We had male midwives and male scientists who completely believed her. And we had plenty of men of learning in London who believed her. But it was characterised afterwards as her maybe representing superstition and credulity and old dark forces of pre-enlightenment thought. It sounds like even in history she gets projected on. Yeah, yeah, and she kind of haunts the 18th century, so she appears in Hogarth prints and lots of famous etchings. She appears in lots of poems, and some of the poems make fun of just the doctors rather than her. Often it's her body representing the doctor's own credulity for believing that this is actually happening. Amelia, thank you for coming in today. Oh, it's a pleasure. We'll put some links up to Mary Toft in our show notes and in the podcast notes for this episode, including links to that Hogarth picture, which is probably the most famous image of Mary Toft. If you like this episode and you want to hear more, we've got lots more. Go to fbiradio.com slash think to hear all of this season's episodes and three seasons worth of archived episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast there and get each episode one day early. Is there something you think we should be making a show about? There's a link there for you to tell us all about it. If you like Not What You Think, you'll probably like a bunch of other great FBI podcasts. Choose some at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Not What You Think is produced by Olivia Perry Griffiths and Lachlan Wiley. Show art by Annie Hamilton. Linda DeLacy is production consultant and executive production is by Samira. It was created by Laura Briley, Claire Holland and me. I'm Sasha Rosen. This is the last episode in this season of Not What You Think. We'll be back soon with season five.